Our passage this morning is 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 12 through 20. Last week we looked at the issue of how pride brought division and lawsuits in the community, and now we face another matter. Let's hear what God's Word says to those struggling with sin and confusion in Corinth and to us today in need of the same truth and help and hope. 1 Corinthians 6, 12 through 20. All things are lawful for me, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be dominated by anything. Food is meant for the stomach and the stomach for food, and God will destroy both one and the other. The body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord, and the Lord for the body. And God raised the Lord and will also raise us up by his power. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Never. Or do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? For as it is written, the two will become one flesh. But he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. Flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. As we situate ourselves to study and examine God's word, to be examined by God's word, I just want to make a note for, for you, for those of you that especially that use the outline there uh, available in the bulletin. Uh, scripture uh, is derived from Greek in the New Testament. And the Greek language did not use quotation marks in the time of Paul. And so uh, when something gets quoted in Greek, we have to figure it out by context. You'll note there's some quotation marks in the passage. Um, there are some disagreements about where they go. And so uh, there in your uh, bulletin outline, verse 13 and verse 18 are reproduced uh, with where I, in consulting with some others, think uh, the quotation marks might be moved um, and some changes to the text because of that. Uh, I just want to address that now, so when I reference it uh, later in the sermon, you have an idea of what I'm talking about, because talking about where quotation marks go uh, can get confusing. So I hope that will be helpful to you. Uh, but let's now pray and ask that the Lord would bring clarity from confusion, hope out of struggle. Let's pray. Gracious God, we come to your word. We come to your word which speaks about a topic that is so prevalent within our society, but also within our hearts as we live in this world. We pray, Lord, that we would not only deal with the fruit of temptation and sin, but the root, the causes, Lord, and pray that we would be refreshed and renewed by being planted deeply in your truth according to your word for your glory. With this time, help us for that purpose, we pray. In the name of Jesus, amen. 
during the, uh, the presentation on the trips to where Jesse Remington took and the crosses went on, they talked about the fact that they were connecting <clears throat> with others. And so sometimes it's helpful when you uh, connect with someone that you don't know to play a game. They talked about bowling and other ways that they connected. And one of the things that we sometimes do to get to know someone or perhaps as a fun way of demonstrating that we know someone is we might play two truths and a lie. It's a test of knowledge. What do you know about me? I'll say two true things about myself and one lie, and you can demonstrate that you know me or the friend with whom you're playing by discerning the thing that isn't true. And even if you get it wrong, when they reveal the truth, you then have an extra nugget, an extra piece of the puzzle about that friend, about that person you're in relationship with. But sometimes, beyond using games to learn things about people, we need help to determine the lies that we unwittingly speak about ourselves. Not the intentional lies for the sake of a game, but the lies we don't even realize that we are believing and repeating. So we often need friends and family members, people who care about us, to confront us when we speak untruths about ourselves. When we respond to a mistake by saying, I can't do anything right. Saying, I'm ugly, or I'm dumb, or no one cares about me. When a friend says those type of things about themselves, it is loving and right to confront the untruth. Because on one hand, we as Christians are called to speak the truth, and those things are not true of those people with whom we love. But also because those lies, if we allow them to go unchallenged, can be destructive to the people that speak them. Can hurt them and their standing before God. The Corinthians are speaking lies about themselves and to themselves. Lies that are leading them to justify sexual immorality as no big deal, including sex with prostitutes, and on many occasions probably prostitution connected to the worship of other gods. They're saying it's no big deal. They're rationalizing it because it's just a body thing. It's just my body doing its thing. What does it matter? We're saved spiritually. Jesus gives us a new heart. One day our bodies are going to pass away. Paul, in love and care for them, doesn't just tell them to stop sinning. Though he's clear, he says, flee sexual immorality. Not just stop it, but, but flee. This is serious. But he goes beyond urging them, commanding them to flee sexual immorality, but he addresses the lies that are at odds with the truth, the lies that lead them to justifying sin and immorality. Paul confronts the lies they are telling with the truth. Because our bodies matter to God, what we do with our bodies matters. That's the truth. That is what Paul is hoping to convey to the church. That's what we need to hear from God this morning. 
So we're going to point out three lies that the Corinthians are believing either explicitly or implicitly in the way that Paul draws attention to the truth in Christ. The first lie, choice is freedom. He responds by explaining to them that what we choose is our master. Two times at the beginning of our passage in verse 12, in quotation marks, and I agree, the Corinthians say, all things are lawful for me. Paul is likely quoting either things that have been written in a letter to him, or he's heard Corinthians use in discussion of their actions. And it's even possible that what the Corinthians are saying is based on Paul's preaching, on the nature of law and our freedom in Christ. Paul is explicit, as we read of in other places, that we are no longer under the law because Christ has set us free from the condemnation of the law. But being set free from the law which condemns us is not the same thing as what they are saying, all things are lawful for me. What they are using that to do is to excuse themselves to overlook all kinds of manners of sin, including what has been addressed earlier, not only sexual immorality, but the lawsuits, and causing them most likely to overlook the sexual infidelity of the man who is sleeping with his stepmother. So Paul confronts their understanding of freedom, that they are free to do what they want, by asking whether freedom from constraint is sufficiently good in and of itself. And addresses the reality that what we are choosing is between two masters. First, he addresses this lie that choice is freedom. By reminding them that just because something is permitted, just because it's allowed, doesn't mean it's beneficial. Verse 12, all things are lawful for me. But not all things are helpful. The truth is, choices have consequences. And those consequences can, in, uh, can then come and shape us. We are shaped by the choices we make, which tend to reinforce themselves into patterns and habits. We may be at liberty to make a decision, but we are not free from the consequences. And so we need to ask, to what end are we making the choice, for good or for ill? You know, as adults, we have the freedom to decide what we're going to eat. We're not like kids who are told, well, mom or dad made this, this is what you're going to eat, who are unable to make things for themselves. We can choose what we eat. But if we make the choice to eat things that are bad for ourselves, if, especially if we eat sugar, that the more and more we study about sugar, the more and more we find it to be addictive, we will choose sugar more and more, which will lead to our unhealth. Paul is confronting the idea that someone can merely have sex with a prostitute and it stops at the end of that engagement. There are consequences. God made sex. He intended sex for a one flesh union within marriage. That's what Genesis 2 tells us. That's what he quotes here. 
there is a bonding that occurs beyond the purely physiological. And the question is, is that bonding good for you to bound yourself to this person who is living and worshiping outside of the context of God's people? So you could argue, though Paul would never argue the fact that this would be lawful for them, but even if they were to say that, he would say, but is it good for you? Is it helpful for you? Does it connect you to God in Christ? In giving oneself in that act, they're really giving themselves over to a sinful act. And in doing so, giving themselves over to the power of sin. Just think of it this way. If there's something I want, I usually have to give something for it. Usually, these days it is, I have to give my email. If I want to read that article, if I, I want that free coupon or whatever it is, I have to give my email. And, and so I'm saying, well, I, I just want that thing. I just want that piece of information. I just want that coupon. But in the giving out of my email, I have essentially given them authority over me to fill my inbox with all manner of advertisements. To give yourself to sin is to give permission and authority to that sin in some way in your life. Which brings to his second point, when he again repeats this idea that all things are lawful for me, he says, but I will not be dominated by anything. What we choose will be to either serve the good or serve what isn't. To serve God or to serve an idol. He says, I will not be dominated, or I will not be under the authority of anything. The issue isn't merely that sex unites us, but sex to a prostitute here is creating union with someone who is living contrary to God's law, and likely in service of other gods. And to give oneself to that person is to choose that person over the Lord's commands. To choose sexual gratification over God's design for sexual intimacy. In saying, my desire is greater than what God has said. Sex is not bad. Money is not bad. Our families, our jobs, they're not bad. But if we choose them, or use them, in opposition to what God has said, we are choosing service to them over service to God. Jesus said, you cannot serve two masters for either the man will love the one and hate the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. And while Jesus is there talking about the particular attraction and addiction towards serving money, that applies to anything that we might serve other than God. Towards the end of the passage in verse 19, he says, this, you are not your own, and then into 20, for you are bought with a price. And we normally think of that language of being bought with the idea of being redeemed, and that's, that's appropriate. But the Greek here is specifically speaking of buying a slave at a, at a slave market, of being bought with a price. You have been enslaved to sin. He is now buying you that you might be a bondservant of the king. The choice is not whether we are going to serve anyone or not. We will serve someone. The choice is whether our choices will reinforce our slavery to what is sinful and destructive or toward what is good and glorifying to God. In Romans 6, Paul writes, 
Do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness? But thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed, and having been set free from sin, have become slaves of righteousness. The Corinthians have forgotten that their freedom from the condemnation of the law is so that they can be servants of God in righteousness. So we need to ask, do our choices reflect that we are serving ourselves and thus that we are enslaved to whatever it is we give ourselves to? Or do we give ourselves wholly to God? For God wants us wholly. He wants us fully. He is not content with part of us, for the whole of us matters to him. Which brings us to the second lie in the confrontation with the truth. The lie that the Corinthians are believing is that some parts matter more than others. Paul says, all of you matters to God. The Corinthians believe sex is just a matter of the body and its appetites that it does not affect, in the end, the spiritual, and therefore it's not something to be concerned about. They're, they're operating according to the presuppositions of their day, time, culture, and the religions around them. The Greeks and the Romans after them believed that the, the true part of the person was the spiritual person, that that was the real person, that the body was akin to just a shell. And so after death, we're shed of our earthly prison to then go on to whatever form of life afterwards where we will be our truest selves. This is reflected in the third quotation here. Food is meant for the stomach and stomach for the food. And I would argue that their point, knowing that they are tending to disconnect the spiritual from the physical, means that the quotation should go later. For food is meant for the stomach and stomach for the food, and God will destroy both one and the other. So if God's going to get rid of the physical one day, what does it matter? I'm just taking care of my body, my shell. I'm just changing the oil in my car. But Paul argues that the body and the soul are not meant to be separate, but together both matter to God. Our bodies are not purely instrumental because our bodies are not an afterthought. God made us for himself physically. Paul then goes on to say that our bodies are not meant for immorality, but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. God made us whole, body and soul, for himself. We are meant for him the way that he made us. To have an outer man, a physical man, and an inner man, the heart, the soul. And yet things which, in our experience, we know that are, in the end, inextricable. Where we are before God impacts the way that we live our lives, the way that the things that we're doing with our body and our time impacts our relationship with the Lord. We are meant for Him, fully. Our bodies are meant for the Lord. And the second part says, and the Lord for the body. And I think that's talking about the incarnation. That in order for our bodies to be restored to him, Christ, because Christ is being referred to there with the, the word Lord, takes on a body so that our bodies can be restored to him. 
if they're still doubting it, Paul goes on to point out the resurrection. And God raised the Lord and will also raise us up by his power. The end result of our salvation is not the release of the true inner man from our physical shells. We are headed towards resurrection. Being renewed in the whole man after the image of Christ. Which then brings us to verse 18, which ends, But the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. It seems that Paul again is quoting them. It says there, flee from sexual immorality, then goes on to say every other sin, and that word other isn't in the Greek. It's been added probably to try to smooth things. But it says every sin a person commits is outside the body. That doesn't sound like the, the testimony of Scripture. That doesn't sound like the testimony of Paul, because then what you're setting up is every sin is outside the body except for sexual sin. But we sin against our bodies through forms of addiction, through forms of self-harm, through all manners of sin. It seems what he's doing is once again confronting that we can somehow sin apart from our bodies, and then it makes all the more sense when he says, but the sexually immoral sins against himself in the body. We are body and spirit. One part does not matter more than the other to God. He came to redeem both in Christ. It is a profound thing. It would have been a profound thing for the Corinthians to hear verse 19. Already in chapter 3, Paul said, you as the community are the temple of God. Collectively, God's spirit dwells among you. Here, individually, he says, do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? In a way that is hard for us to metaphysically get our minds around, the spiritual presence of God is present in with our physical being. Because God sent his son in the likeness of man so that we could be restored to relationship with God. Earlier in chapter 3, Paul said, If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him, for God's temple is holy, and you are that temple. Can we claim that our bodies, which Paul here describes as temples of the holy God, be things which we can sin against or destroy or treat as a mere vehicle? The answer is no. Now, societally, we are in a different place. We don't tend to say it's only the inside person that matters The outer body doesn't matter. Where the tendency is now to minimize anything but the physical. All that we are is physical. We are just a product of the firing of neurons, of the interaction of chemicals. And so, therefore, we are led by the desires and the impulses of our body. Uh, What we do physically, what we desire physically, controls who we understand ourselves to be at the core. Rather than inward working outward, there's an outward working in. But it leads to the same 
tendency to disjoin aspects of ourselves from the whole as justification to sin. For them, it's just the body so we can sin. We have the same tendencies. We might say, well, pornography, it's just images on a screen. The reality is that viewing pornography rewires the way that our bodies experience sex and the way that we can even bond with people when we are actually intimate in the way that God designed us to be. We might say, well, it's just our bodies that are the true part of who we are, and that begins to impact the way that people act online. We use language about people and to people in emails and on social media that we would never say face-to-face because somehow that's not real. It's just the internet. We should pay attention whenever we begin a sentence with, it's just. Because so often it's an attempt to justify sin by disconnecting it from the whole. I appreciate my good brother, Pastor Billy Boyce, for pointing that out. It's just online. It's just images on a screen. It's just a few words. It's just a few bucks. It's just a few hours. We need to pay attention that we don't lie to ourselves, claiming we fully love God when there are aspects of ourselves, the emotional or the physical, the intellectual or the spiritual, that we act as if don't matter to God. Can we claim to worship God with all of our hearts and with all of our souls when we make our physical presence in corporate Lord's Day worship a secondary or tertiary priority? Can we claim to love our neighbor when we say nice things to their face and yet whisper within our hearts gossip and bitterness about them? The whole of us matters to God. All of us are called to obey him and serve him in love. But also hear this, that the whole of us is not just the grounds in which we are called to obedience, but the totality of us is the sphere in which God has enacted redemption. That because all of us matters, the redemption he offers us in Christ is total and complete. Jesus came not only to undo the spiritual consequences of sin, but to fully redeem, washing away the pollution of sin within and without. To make whole our bodies, which bear in them the scars and the memory of the sin that we have committed and the sins that have been committed against us. That arthritic set of knuckles from where we broke our hand when we punched the wall in anger will be made whole. that tendency to yell and scream because of our impatience will be softened. The trauma which affects our neuroreceptor releases, our heart rate and our blood pressure, Jesus came to fix. Jesus came to wash our bodies. We are baptized in his death and resurrection so that we could body and soul mind and matter, all of us be made new, meant for him and for his glory. 
Just as there is not one piece of this world that God does not claim as his, there is not one part of you that he does not claim as his. And in every place that we have distorted or injured ourselves or others with sin, be it soul, be it our psyche, be it our emotions, or be it our body, Christ has come to redeem all of you. So that we could live not as our own, but the Lord's. The third lie that that Paul confronts is this tendency to believe that I am my own, that my life is for me, when we are for the Lord. The Corinthians are reflecting their societal, their cultural, their religious assumptions about body and soul. But it falls within the human tendency throughout all history, whatever our culture, to reserve some aspect of ourselves for ourselves. By saying God doesn't care about the thoughts, or God doesn't care about the words online, or what we do with our bodies. Anytime we say that, anytime we believe that, we are reflecting our tendency to think of ourselves as our own. There is a part of me that belongs to me, and only me, and it's just for me. But we were made by God for God. All of us is not only redeemed by him in Christ, but all of us is meant for him. Sin is a rebellion against this, and redemption in Christ restores this. Verse 15 reflects this truth. As as Paul is helping them understand the impact and the consequences of this form of sexual immorality, he points to the reality of what has been accomplished in the redemption. Verse 15, he says, do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Not just we're connected to him. We just haven't haven't entered into a contractual agreement. We're not just neighbors with Christ. We're not just friends with him. We are members of him. Just the way that your fingers, your arms, and your feet are parts of your body. My hand has no existence despite what the Adams family says, apart from its connection to me. When we are made new in Christ, we become restored to what we're meant to do, live in and with and for God, becoming members connected to Jesus. Just as we can't disjoin one part of our body from ourselves, the whole nor can we take one part of ourselves in sin and claim that as our own. Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Paul's saying, can you disconnect yourself from Christ in order to connect yourself to a prostitute? No, then what you are doing in effect is connecting Christ to that prostitute or to those pornographic images, or to those words of hate that you are spewing. What you are doing necessarily involves Christ. It is a violent act to try to disjoin yourself from Christ in order to join with one outside of the body of Christ. So you can't do it. So what you are doing then involves the name of Christ the whole of those tied to Christ in such an act. Not only are you involving Christ, but every other member of Christ with you. 
Our lives are meant for the glory of God. We are either actively rebelling against that or we are joined in Christ with others and able to fulfill that. It brings us back to verse 19 where he reminds us that do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? Our bodies are temples. We are redeemed as servants for God. Our bodies are for the purpose of worshiping God, of experiencing God, of knowing God. That leads us to his final command. Therefore, glorify God in your bodies. Restored by Christ, not only does your, your soul or your heart worship God, but your, your body, your, all of your life becomes an avenue of worship to God. Therefore, glorify God in your bodies. How do we do that? Well, on one hand, Paul is just encouraging them to avoid sin. Flee sexual immorality. And any other sin which would bring shame on the name of Christ, which combats our call to glorify God. Doesn't matter whether it's mental, doesn't matter whether it's spiritual, doesn't matter whether it's emotional, psychological, or physical. If it is sinful, turn from it. Glorify God with our bodies by turning our back on sin. But also glorify God in our bodies by seeing that the opportunity to glorify God is greater than we ever thought. That if we are fully God's, then our life is full of opportunities to bring him glory and honor and praise. If we can glorify him with our knees bent in prayer, we can also glorify him as we tend our gardens or work on our houses as stewards of God's gifts to us. That our voices can be lifted up in songs of worship to God, but that we can also worship God with our voices when we whisper lullabies to sick toddlers at 2 a.m. in the morning. We can worship Him reading Scripture and imbibing the truth, and also when we read our emails to do our work. Suddenly, when we realize that we are not our own, that we are no longer bound by the limits of living for and reflecting ourselves, but instead are members of Christ. We are temples of the Holy Spirit. Our lives, however small, however limited, however finite, can be joined with the task of all creation, the glorification of God. Fleeing sexual immorality doesn't cause your life to be less because God is taking something away from you. But he's giving back to you what your body was intended for, what your heart was intended for, to worship him with all that you are. Jesus came to redeem us from the slavery of sin that we sold ourselves into by choosing self over God. And he came to redeem us, not just our souls, but our bodies, all of us, because all of us were meant for him. And so redeemed and united to Christ, body and soul, let us glorify him with all that we are. Let's pray. God, we pray 
as Jesus came to give himself for us that all of us might be saved, that we in worship, in service, in obedience would offer all that we are in return to you. To remember that the offer of the gospel is freedom from our slavery to sin. That we might live fully holy for you. Lord, would we repent of holding on to aspects of our lives for ourselves. May we give all to you. In Jesus' name, amen.